Good morning, beloved. Today I want to speak to this one idea. Hold fast to the pattern. So as we go throughout the sermon, just remember that phrase, hold fast to the pattern. We're continuing our congregational series entitled Disciple Makers in a Post-Christian World. And that's going to be the series title, and we've introduced that series last week. Last week, if you were here, we defined disciple maker, the meaning of a disciple maker. We also defined post-Christian in some detail, and we spoke to what we mean specifically by that term. So if you want a more robust explanation, you can find that from last week's message, either on our YouTube page or through our church website. But as an introduction, I just want to give a quick summation of what we mean when we say post-Christian. When we say post-Christian, we are saying, we're talking about a society that was historically built on Christian moral standards, but now is becoming more and more antagonistic towards Christianity as a whole. We're talking about a society that now more and more views Christianity as oppressive, corrupt, and political. And last week we explained that the degree of antagonism against Christianity will differ based on where you live. The cultural climate, climate towards Christianity in the Bible Belt is going to differ from parts of the Pacific Northwest. So we can all understand that reality. And so last week we were in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where the point we're trying to make from 2 Timothy 3 is that as Christians, we should not be overly concerned. We should be discerning, but we shouldn't panic because the New Testament has already prepared us for post-Christian times. Paul warned Timothy that there would be difficult times and deceptive teachers. So last week we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that Paul was addressing a sinful world that opposed biblical teaching. And this sinful world, the ideas that dominate the sinful world, these sinful vices, yes, they existed outside of the church. But these ideas were being imported into the church by false deceptive teachers. And so there was this deception that was going on in the church of Ephesus. Now Paul's solution for Timothy is not some astronomical you know, science that you've never heard of, but it's the basic science of disciple-making. But Paul instructed Timothy to make disciples of a certain kind. And we want to show that it is doctrinal disciple-making. So I've entitled our sermon today, Doctrinal Disciple-Makers in the Church. In other words, one of the key responses to an ever-growing antagonism towards Christianity is making disciples of a certain kind, making doctrinal disciple-makers. And today, I want to talk about holding fast to the pattern of doctrinal disciple-making. What do we mean by doctrinal? What is doctrinal? Now, doctrine is not just a Christian term. Doctrine refers to a set of beliefs or principles. This can apply to any religion or even secular creeds, right? Doctrine just simply refers to a set of principles or beliefs. And when we refer to biblical doctrine, specifically, we're talking about beliefs and practices from Scripture. So not just knowledge, not just beliefs to place your knowledge in or to gain an intellectual accent because you've gained religious knowledge. But Christianity and the Bible, the Bible informs Christians of how we are to live our lives. 
So not just beliefs, but practice. That's biblical doctrine. Now, what do we mean by doctrinal disciple-making? We're talking about a pattern of making disciples of Christ with and through Scripture. Again, this is not new. It shouldn't be new to any of you who have been anywhere near a Christian circle, right? Is that we're making disciples of Christ with what? What, what objective source? What objective truth? What are, these, what are these disciples supposed to look like? How are these disciples supposed to behave? How do they think? How should they feel? How should Christians live our lives the Bible is our source of authority. So doctrine does not merely refer to what you know, but it also dictates how you live. Now meet me now in 2 Timothy chapter 3 once again, and we're going to pick up in verse 10. We're going to pick up in verse 10. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 10. And what I want you to see, point number one, is I want you to see that in contrast to the deceptive teachers in Ephesus, in contrast to the deceptive ideas from the world, Timothy is to follow a pattern of doctrinal disciple-making. So point number one is pattern of doctrinal disciple-making. What I'm going to present to you on the slides is going to be a little different from what you have printed in your bulletins because I made some changes uh, last night after the bulletins were long printed and ready to go. I uh, made some changes last night, got some more clarity, and so even in the big idea, there's some changes. So just look to the screen and you'll see those changes. They're minor changes. In other words, what we're going to see when I take you to the passage is that Paul's telling Timothy, and he's telling all of us by extension as Christ followers, hold fast to the right mentors. Follow the pattern of godly people. When you find godly, trustworthy men and women, hold fast to the pattern. Follow them. Because in following them, you will be saved from deceptive teachers, deceptive people, and deceptive ideas. You see, the world is constantly trying to shape how you and I think, feel, and live. Whether we invite this type of worldly discipleship or the worldly creeds trying to shape us, the world is trying. They're going to come at us every single day through the media, through social media, through just common cultural ideas. They want to shape how we think, how we feel, how we live, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, what we give our attention to. The world is going to disciple you, whether you like it or not. The world is going to mentor you, whether you like it or not. And so it is critical that we follow the pattern of trustworthy Christ followers. Let me show you this in the scripture now. What I've laid out for you is a semantic diagram, somewhat, uh, but in English. And I want you to see how it's laid out. I just want you to see it. If you, if you don't understand it, it's okay. Okay? It's okay. But I want you to see the argument laid out. So this is not how it's written in your Bibles, but I've made some um, structural adaptations so that you can see it. Notice that it begins in verse 10. You, unlike the false teachers, Timothy, you, however have followed. You have followed. That's discipleship. That's discipleship. You are different, Christ follower. You are different, Christian. Unlike the various types of thinking and people being influenced in this world, you, however, have followed. What have you followed? Notice Paul, he's not being self-centered. He's making it personal. These are not abstract ideas. 
He's saying, you have followed my teaching. You've seen it lived out. You've heard it in the context of a mentoring, disciple-making relationship. This is not your favorite pastor on a podcast that you've never met. This is not the Christian leader on a stage, Timothy. Timothy, you're not just receiving these letters from someone that you don't know. You have followed. You've walked with me. You've seen my life. You've followed what? My teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. You've basically followed my ministry. You've followed my ministry. You follow how I minister to you. Now, Timothy, I want you to minister to those in Ephesus. How? Do what I did. Watch me. You've watched me. Now I want you to make disciples. My teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. Aim in life means his purpose. Everyone has a purpose in life. Paul's aim in life was to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he had a specific target. God had called him to bring the gospel specifically to the Gentiles. Paul was a Jew. And he was to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he understood very clearly what God had called him to do. And he's like, Timothy, you know my teaching. You know what I taught. You know my conduct. You've observed my life. Follow. Secondly, he says, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. So not only my ministry, Timothy, but in, the second line, in that third line, I want you to follow what my character. You see, it's not just his teaching. It's not just what he does on the outside. It's not just his purpose. But Timothy, you've seen my faith when tested. You've seen my faith. You've seen my patience with the church. You've seen my patience when people have gone against me. I want you in the same way to love people, to be humble. I want you in the same way. You've watched me. I want you to make disciples in the same way. You've, you've seen my patience. You've seen my love. You've seen my steadfastness. Right? So first, his ministry. Second, his character. Third, my sufferings. My sufferings. You've seen my persecution and my sufferings. Which ones? Well, Timothy. So you see, it's very personal. Timothy, you know which ones. Timothy, don't be surprised when they persecute you. Because you already know that Christianity, by default, comes with persecution. How do you know? Because you've been with me, Timothy. Which ones? Well, you were with me. The sufferings that happened to me, specifically at Antioch, and then at Iconium, and then at Lystra. Right? There are specific instances, Timothy, where you've seen me suffer, yet I've held out my faith. And it says, which persecutions I endured, yet from them, all of them, the Lord rescued me. I will exposit that. But what I want you to gather from just the personalization is that doctrinal disciple-making is first in contrast to the various false doctrines and false ideas and false teachers in this world. There are countless influencers on social media that want to influence people. They want to influence you. They want you to think. They want you to consume their content. There's so much. And we have to look to the pattern of sound teachers and sound teaching. Next week, we'll get to Scripture, the source. Today, we want to look at the pattern of these mentors. But the whole idea of Paul repeating my, my, my is that you know how sometimes, and I know I do this to you, 
because I can't be in all of your lives. I know I do this to you. You know, sometimes you receive Christian teaching, Christian theology, and it's abstract. It's this abstract idea. That's why you need disciple making. It's not just academic information being distilled from someone on a stage where you're like, okay, I kind of get it. But disciple making needs to be relational. Now that relationship can be one-to-one, Jesus and Peter. It can be one-to-three, Jesus with Jesus with Peter, James, and John. It can be one-to-twelve, and one of them will betray you, Judas. Right? It can be in a small group setting. It can be in a small cohort. But at the end of the day, disciple-making in the church needs to be relational. There needs to be a relational context. And relationship is what takes the most time. You see, it's easy to teach some, someone doctrine. It's hard to walk with them when they're trying to wrestle with that doctrine, when they're struggling with sin, when they're being challenged. Disciple-making is more like spiritual parenting. I wanted to entitle today's sermon, Spiritual Parents, but then all of you who don't have kids or who are empty nesters wouldn't come to church. When I say spiritual parents, I am not talking about a real parent. A real parent with a child in the home needs to be a spiritual parent. But every disciple maker, when you disciple someone else, you put on the mindset and the hat of a spiritual parent. And it might be for a season of someone's life. Or you may, might contribute spiritual parenting in a certain way. You see, spiritual parenting, you take ownership. Now, of course, the disciple needs to want to be mentored and want to be discipled. But it's a difference, right? When you have your kid who's acting out of order, and everybody just kind of looks at that kid and says, where, where is the parent? And the parent has to come and claim the child. You see, the parent needs to take ownership of their own child. But the same way, when we make disciples, we need to have a relationship, which is hard, and you actually take ownership, which means you're not only teaching them the good stuff, but when that disciple is in sin or struggling, you are the one that takes spiritual ownership, not domineering, not a power dynamic where you're oppressing them, but you walk alongside and you take responsibility and you teach them, and you guide them, and you mentor them, and you say, watch me. They can't watch you if you just teach from a distance. You can't watch the life of your favorite podcast pastor. You need to watch their life. Follow the pattern. It's very personal. Disciple-making is personal. It's relational. Now, with that, let me get into some some ideas here from the text. When Paul refers to his teaching, he's referring to, first and foremost, an accurate understanding of the gospel. And then he's referring to biblical doctrine. We're going to look at this this next week. But when he traveled with Paul on those missionary journeys, when, when Paul traveled with Timothy, Timothy was able to sit under Paul's teaching. But sometimes you realize more is caught than taught. So you see Timothy, where is he learning the most? Not just with Paul personally teaching him, okay? But he's probably sitting there watching Paul enter the city, get up on a platform, and begin to teach. Then he sees Paul in the home, in the, in the, in the local church, teaching. Then he sees Paul teaching and helping people with sin and dealing with false teachers. And then on the side, he can pull Paul aside and say, hey, can you give me some pointers? What, what were you doing there? You see, so not only is he getting teaching from Paul, he's getting a model of how to teach other people. 
And so he's walking with Paul. He's, he's witnessed not only the content, but he's witnessed Paul's teaching. And he understands now not only the content of the gospel, but how to teach the gospel in different contexts to different people and especially to the Gentiles. And then when you get to Paul's character, the faith, the patience, the love, the steadfastness, patience, this word carries this meaning of being able to bear under mistreatment from others. Patience means you're receiving that persecution. Or when you disciple someone, they're not always going to appreciate you. They might even turn against you. They're not going to listen to you all the time. They're not going to appreciate you until later, until they have to disciple other people. Right? We never appreciate the sacrifice of our parents, our good parents, until we become parents ourselves. And we're like, oh, it was hard. Right? The same way with spiritual parenting. Sometimes you just have to be okay with that. That people are not going to appreciate your influence on them until they have to disciple people. And that's why it's important that, that, that you teach them. Whatever I teach you, you need to, if I'm going to show you this, you need to show, show it to someone else. Or you need to show it to someone else. Now, Paul's, Paul's character was one of faith and patience and steadfastness. Steadfastness refers to perseverance. The word literally means to remain under Remain under the Lord. Remain under sound doctrine even when it's constantly being challenged. And that's why he was able to endure suffering. Now in verse 11, I mentioned Paul's suffering. He's referring specifically to what we can read about in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14. Okay, in Acts chapter 13, it, it begins to describe, it records Paul suffering in Antioch and Iconium. And then in Acts 14, it records Paul being pelted by stones to the point that he nearly died in Lystra. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how God disciples me indirectly, but it, it is beautiful. As a pastor who's had the privilege to minister to older people, you're not old, okay, I'm not calling you old, but older people meaning you've had parents who have died. And, and there's some saints among us who uh, I've had to do their funerals as well, right? Whenever I go to a funeral, and I know that you love Jesus Christ, and whether I'm officiating or not, I get to hear the story of your parents. And if they're Christian, I get to hear the legacy of the discipleship that was passed down to you. And by sitting and listening, I, it is better when I don't officiate. Because I'm, I'm, I get to sit there and hear it. I'm actually being discipled. It encourages me. It builds me up. Because I get to hear about your parents as immigrants. And how they struggled in their, in their country. And even being persecuted. And then coming to America. And then picking. And then, and just, and then somehow they become Christians. And they, they've instilled it unto you. And then maybe you've, you've instilled that into your family. And, and, and I just get to see how they've endured to the end. There's a steadfastness. And so it's just like what's happening here. It's very specific. It's not, just, it's not this abstract, oh, you should suffer. You know, sometimes when we read about Paul suffering or, or, or we hear about Jim Elliott, we are inspired, but it's so distant to us because it's like superheroes. But when I hear about your parents or your grandparents, remember, I don't come from a Christian home. I get discipled. Oh, that's what it's like. Oh, that, that's what it's like, right? And I hear about how they endured. And, and it's like Paul saying to Timothy, you were there. I'm, I'm not just telling you something abstract. You were there, Timothy, at, at Antioch, at Iconium. Now, what happened to Paul in Lystra is that he nearly died. 
he nearly died because the people rose up against him. They threw stones and, and, and they stoned him, not in a California way of being stoned, okay, with marijuana, but really with rocks. I have to be careful because when I preach, when I used to preach to youth and I'm like, Paul got stoned, they're like, oh. I'm like, no, that's not, that's not what I mean, guys. That's not what I mean. That's, that's not good. I meant, I meant with rocks. He got stoned because the Bible says he got stoned. He was stoned with rocks and he was left to die. And miraculously, we believe, that God allowed him to live. And he escaped, right? And, and so that's what he means specifically that God had rescued him. In verse 11, out of all of them, the Lord rescued him. But think about the difference between Paul's idea of rescue and our idea of rescue. Our idea of God delivered me from the trial and suffering is no suffering or minimal suffering. When he says God delivered him, he's still persecuted. He's still beaten, beaten painfully near death. He was still thrown in prison. He still suffered. So his idea of rescue is much deeper than simply escaping pain or suffering. That's why he endured the sufferings. Sometimes we ask God to rescue us. We're asking God, remove us from the difficult circumstance to prevent persecution. Paul saying, God delivered me afterwards. Why did he deliver him? Paul knew I, he doesn't mind dying. But Paul knew that the only reason the Lord delivered him because the Lord was not done with him. I can imagine Paul, Paul God, I'm tired, just let me die. <laughs> and then God says, no, get up, Paul, you got to go. You got to keep preaching. He's like, oh, really? Really, I got to go again? He says, yeah, your name's Paul, not Jonah. Get up. Get up. Get up and go. Right? And so Paul continues, and that's his aim in life. But I want to go a little bit deeper, because in the very same book, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I want you to understand Paul's understanding of rescue. Now, specifically in our passage, he's talking specifically to the Lord rescuing him from Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. But check this out. 2 Timothy chapter 4, the very next chapter, verse 18. Paul uses the same word, same context of suffering. And he says, the Lord will, future tense, will rescue me from every evil deed. What do you mean? You're getting assaulted, Paul. You're getting punched. Like Draymond Green punched his teammate, right? I have to say that because I need to make one correction, so I plan to do this. Um, when I prayed for Pastor Terrence, I said that he is the Draymond Green of our pastoral staff. And what I meant by he is the glue guy, so, I mean, his family's sitting there. You know, he's the glue guy that holds us together. He's the, he gives us emotional energy. He, he gets us together. He pulls us together, right? Uh, so Draymond, that's his value to the Warriors. Um, Pastor Terrence is not Draymond Green. I take that back now. Because Draymond Green uh, punched his own teammate, right? Uh, so anyway, Paul was punched. He was punched. Um, he was punched. He was assaulted. He was beaten. But notice he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. But, but these evil deeds are still happening to him. You see? He's not saying, God, deliver me from the evil deeds happening to me. He's saying, you will rescue me because these evil deeds are assaulting me. That's why he needs to be rescued, because he's already being assaulted, and, and, and he's being persecuted, and the Lord will rescue me. But what is his idea of rescue? It is to bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. I just want you to think about that, beloved. 
Paul's idea of rescue is not remove me from earthly suffering, but when one day you take me home, you will one way or another bring me into the heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Ultimately, Paul views divine rescue as God delivering him to the heavenly kingdom. Where, when, and when Paul's martyred, he will ultimately be rescued from every evil deed and delivered unto God's holy presence. So that's what he means. Eventually, all this evil that's coming towards me, eventually I will be delivered and, and going to heaven. And, and here's a key historical fact. Somebody give me the answer. You might know, Bible students, BSF students. When Paul wrote to Timothy, where was he? Louder. In prison. In prison. Paul so different from the pastors and leaders of our day. There's nothing wrong with what I'm about to show you and tell you. But here's the pastors and leaders of our day. Leaders, not pastors. Leaders of our day, Christian leaders. A Christian pastor does some great ministry maybe urban ministry, maybe rural ministry, he becomes successful, very successful. So he gets a book deal. He writes a book about it, starts a podcast about it. And so he gets invited to go around. And he goes around telling everybody, here's the formula for success. Here's how you implement these technical strategies, and you will have a great urban ministry or rural ministry or suburban ministry. And something changes. Eventually there's a disconnect. Because if they're no longer in that changing environment, they're no longer adapting. And so somewhere along the lines, their principles become good principles, but abstract principles. But they're making a lot of money. But become abstract principles. Paul is not saying, hey, the Lord rescued me from suffering. Now, I'm going to go around everywhere, Timothy, and I'm going to tell you, here's the recipe. Here's, here are the technical strategies for how to overcome suffering. Because I suffered, I was nearly killed, and I succeeded. Here's my book. Here's my podcast. Listen to my podcast. Follow me on social media, Timothy. Paul says, Timothy, I'm writing you this letter. I'm still in prison. And did you know that soon after this, where is he in prison, Bible students? Rome. Soon after, what would happen to him? Beheaded, right? He would be killed. So what you have in Paul is someone who's writing about suffering from the position of he's still suffering. Yet he believes that the Lord has rescued him. Follow the pattern. Follow the pattern of sound faith. You see, here's where it connects to us. You and I don't gain spiritual endurance until you experience suffering of some form. Otherwise, spiritual growth is an abstract principle. Until you yourself 
go through hard times and have to reach for spiritual truth and grow in Christ, then knowledge will turn into wisdom. You hear me? You, you guys, amen? And so that is why. I mean, one of the reasons why I, I think no matter how great a Christian leader becomes, uh, they should still at some point be in the local church, pastor or lay lead the local church, because in staying with the church, but he's in prison, okay, so he can't. In staying in the church, that's how Timothy is going to learn how to deal with false teaching, shepherd people, go through suffering, lead the church through persecution. You see, and, and in the same way, we, until you make a disciple, everything's abstract to you. The Great Commission's abstract to you. Until you are discipled, right, so one, you want to be discipled, you're not going to understand it. But it's one thing to be discipled. That's theory and knowledge, and maybe it's helping you. But until you pass it on to someone else to say, hey, watch me. And you're imperfect. I'm imperfect. But you say, hey, look, here's how I deal with my sin. Follow me. Watch me. It's all abstract. And, and you need to get into the messiness and the hardness. This leads us to point number two, perseverance. So the first thing is the pattern of doctrinal disciple-making. Point number two, what we see in verses 12 to 14, is perseverance in doctrinal disciple-making. Perseverance in doctrinal disciple-making. Once again, I laid out the text for you. Let me show you. Notice there's a couple characters in here, right? There's those who desire to live a godly life. That should be every Christian. It says that then there's the evil people and impostors, so there's a contrast. And then there's the action. The evil people and the postures, they will go on. They will continue in deception and sin. But then there's you, Timothy, that's the person who desires to live a godly life, will also continue. But you'll continue in what you've learned, Scripture, and you firmly believed it, and knowing from whom you learned it. So disciple-making, the pattern is what you learn, Scripture, and who you've learned it from. Timothy, pay attention to what I've taught you, and remember who taught it to you. Right? That's the pattern. It's the Word of God and the people who disciple you in the Word of God and in a relational context. Now let's break it down. Let me read you the text. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's no if, ands, or buts, right? There's no if, ands, or buts. It, it doesn't say, well, some people. Now, given that every Christian will receive a different degree of antagonism or persecution, Christians in Muslim nations or in East Asia are going to experience persecution at a different degree than you and I, but they will also experience different resilience, different growth, and different blessings. And so, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, that's speaking to every genuine believer, will be persecuted. You've got to highlight that. While evil people, that's people who don't desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, and impostors, so fake Christians, yeah, that's kind of convicting, is a comfortable Christian, a false Christian, not necessarily, but Comfort is one of the greatest idols of suburban Christianity. 
evil people and impostors will go on. They will continue from bad to worse. Look at the progression. Deceiving and being deceived. So not only they will make disciples too. Parents, if you teach your kids that the ultimate goal in life is to be successful and to be comfortable and to achieve material wealth, you are deceiving them because you've been deceived. All right? We'll go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So there's, it's a process. Everyone's making disciples. You're being discipled, you're being deceived, and you're deceiving other people. But as for you, men and women of God, continue. That is the only command in our passage today. That is in the imperative. Continue in what you have learned. Next week we'll see that's the scriptures. And have firmly believed. So not only have you learned it, it's not just an accumulation of knowledge like we mentioned, but you've been convinced of it. This is an external source. This is not a self-discovery, which we'll talk about next week. This is not a discover yourself, determine reality and truth from within yourself. This is somebody taught it to you. You had a pattern to follow, and you were convinced. Not only did you learn it, it says, and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it from. So not only what you learned, but the people who taught it to you, your disciple makers were trustworthy. So that's what I meant. When you find those people, hold fast to the pattern. Hold fast. Hold fast. This Greek word for continue can be translated as as remain, abide, dwell, stay the course, or hold fast. Hold fast. So here's the big idea. The big idea of today's message is hold fast to Christ. How? It's not abstract. It's not abstract. It's not just abstract theology. Hold fast to Christ. How? By persevering in the pattern of doctrinal disciple-making. I hear a lot of people my age, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm almost Gen X, like right there, like Gen Y, whatever that is. I don't consider myself a millennial. But I hear a lot of older millennials and Gen X complain about the younger generation. Isn't that funny? <laughs> because we ain't even that old, but we are. And of course that means you see the boomers complaining about Gen X and Gen Y and millennials and Gen Z, oh, yeah, look at them. They have no work ethic. They're lazy. They want flexi hours. Oh, you hear all these complaining. Stop complaining. Stop complaining. Show them. But then when I say show them, a lot of my peers, again, oh, but they don't want to learn. Are you sure? It's because you wanted to teach them a lesson. You wanted to give them a book. They want a relationship. Didn't you want a relationship, Gen Xer? Isn't that why you left the fundamental church? You wanted not just doctrine. You wanted doctrine in life. You wanted relationships. So why not? And it can't just be the pastor. It needs to be everybody a disciple maker. Now, next week, we will talk about our church equipping parents to be primary disciple makers in the home. And we'll talk about how that means we need more than just the parents because you have Parents who are not Christian, 
You have parents from other congregations that need help because they don't understand the culture and the language as well. They need help, immigrants. And so that's where whether you're a parent or not, we need help. But today I want to talk about disciple-making in the church via application. Everybody in the church can participate. You can disciple someone your age. You can, you can even disciple upwards, respectfully. There's an art to doing that. And then you can disciple someone down. Now, obviously, it's awkward. I'm not saying you go around and say, hey, I, I think I should disciple you. But we need to put ourselves in environments and communities and groups where we connect intergenerationally. I want to tell you why God has blessed me. Okay, So, so I'm going to give you personally. Some of you who have been with us, we know this. It's not boasting. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul said of himself, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And the grace of God toward me was not in vain. One of the graces of God that God's given me is older generation saints. I have peers who serve in contexts where they have a lot of freedom. They can do a lot of things that I can't do because their churches are all younger than them. So culturally, it's, it's a little easier. But there are lessons that the Lord has blessed me with because of indirect and direct disciple-making. There's immigrant grit that I learned from some of you. How not to quit. How to show up because you're faithful, because God's Word said so. I've had my share during my youth pastor days of the 16-year-old that says, well, pastor, I didn't want to show up for worship practice today because I didn't feel like it. I was tired. I've never had that with my English congregation of adults unless you're sick. Sometimes I have to say, you're sick. Go home. I see the immigrant grit. I, or maybe some of you, you were born here, but you learned it from your parents. Pastor, I know that there's all kinds of things going on, but I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm going to show up. Show up to set up. I'm going to show up to run AV. I'm going to show up. You taught me that. You taught me that. You didn't ever teach me that. You never said that to me. I watched. I watched. You discipled me. You gave me resilience. I go to other places and I can speak into other pastors' lives because you taught me that. I did not grow up in a, an explicitly Christian home. My father and I have a great relationship. He's not a believer and I respect him. My mom spent some time in the church. But our home was not explicitly Christian. The mom brought me to church. Many of you taught me over the years. Taught me. And at a certain point, the Holy Spirit set fire to the Bible stories and the teaching. Some of you basketball coaches, oh, thank you for your patience. You taught me. You didn't teach me the Bible. You taught me other things. Character. I can refer to people in my life. I can refer to people in this church. Not just the pastors, but yes, I can refer to Pastor Albert, Pastor Jackson, Pastor Jerry, Pastor Allen, people from my past that have taught me. I can refer to Tony Firth, who discipled many of you, who taught me how to manage money, how to have a kingdom perspective, how to have a savings account, how to, how to conduct myself in the business world, how to be a man. He wasn't a pastor. You see, there are people like me who don't have a Christian home. And they will be of different ages. Some of them 
young adults, some, of, some people are old and they need discipleship, some kids, some children, and every one of you can be a disciple maker in a different way. The more and more people we have being involved in doctrinal disciple making, that means, yes, we all got to learn the scriptures. We all got to learn basic doctrine. We all got to learn basic. I'm not saying you got to go to seminary and become a theologian, but you have to know enough about the Bible and the gospel. And then the rest, more is caught than taught. The rest is what 90% of you don't want to do is to have the relationship because that takes time. But you set the parameters. You set the parameters. Don't let the generational difference get in the way. And that's why more and more we are encouraging intergenerational fellowship, our Sunday school, the women's, in, the women's intergenerational events, those women in community. We have the young adult. They're not putting on a young adult ministry on the Harvest Festival. They want to invite the entire church, and that's an opportunity just to connect intergenerationally. Don't look at that as a young person thing. Show up. Show up. Make connections. Let it be organic, and allow the Holy Spirit to connect people. That is how we as a church, see, that's how we as a church is going to persevere in light of a post-Christian culture. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes an entire church to raise generations. Generations. Our church doesn't do a lot of things well. We will never do certain things well. We're not in an urban setting. We care about urban justice. We just won't ever do it very well. This is not resource to do it. We just never do it well. We will never be a great concert church. We've got some great stuff, but this is not our church. Other churches can do that very well. There are other specific ministries that other churches will do very, very well. Radio ministry, different things. But the one thing that the Lord has shown over almost four decades and continuing into the future, that one thing that the Lord has called us to do, that we can do, is to disciple generations and to equip children, youth, and some of you are like, well, that doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does. And to equip collegians, young adults. There was a season where we didn't have many young adults. Now they're here because of your example. And being intergenerational. Being intergenerational. Having a church where we have people across all ages. That is the type of disciple-making church that FCBC Walnut can do. The other churches, they can do other things better. If we try to do those things, we're in the wrong lane. This is what God has called us to do. Is to influence, impact, and to, and to pass on the pattern of doctrinal disciple-making to every generation. So next week we're going to come. We're going to look at in the home. We're going to look at why the English congregation is anchoring all three congregations in this area, how we can contribute, and we're going to look at our source. All scripture is breathed out by God. We're going to look at our, the pattern is based on an objective source. And we're going to look at that next week. And then the week after that, we'll look at how we all need to announce and tell the truth. So we're moving from outward last week in the introduction 
the outside world, into the church, and then we'll move back out into how we engage the world, okay? Once again, hold fast to Christ. How? By persevering in the pattern of doctrinal disciple-making. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and we thank you for how you've blessed our church over the decades, that we have multiple generations of disciple-makers, disciplers, saints, who model what it means to follow Christ through ever-changing times. Lord, we also thank you that you've given us your word and that you've given us the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would come together as a church and to become a church not just of disciples, not just a church that does discipleship, but a church that reproduces disciple makers. My generation of parents, we need help. We need help from the generation that has gone before us, those with immigrant grit and resilience. They've lived in a different world. They've had different challenges, but we can learn. We pray, Lord, that they would teach us how to persevere. We pray, we, we pray, Lord, for the younger generation that they would teach us, old people, creativity, adaptivity, how to adapt, Lord, to an ever-changing and an anti-Christian world. We believe that it is not us who will have to engage the worst that is to come. The hope for the ever-changing antagonistic world, they are sitting in the youth service right now. It is their generation that will have to engage and make disciples. Our call is not to understand all the crazy things in this world. Our call is to pass to them the pattern of sound doctrine and they take it and translate it for the world, their world, Lord. It is easier sometimes than we think. Our answer is in Scripture because all Scripture is sufficient to equip us for life and death. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would make us a church that wants to follow Scripture, not only to learn Scripture, but to pass it on to every generation. Help us, Lord, to catch fire for your word and that we would hold fast to it. It is in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.